Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 21 of Defining Talent, a podcast. I'm your host, Laura Dickinson-Turner, and as I have been for all of Season 1, I am sitting down today with someone from the College of Arts and Letters at Cal State LA and asking them the elusive question, how do you define talent? For today's episode, I got to talk talent with Dr. Cynthia Wong from the Department of Communication Studies. And although we had never met prior to this recording, listening to this episode sounds like listening to two long-established colleagues. She is so freaking cool. And after our recording session, I honestly just want to sneak into some of her classes to listen and observe. So without further ado, here is Defining Talent with Dr. Cynthia Wong. Department's pretty awesome. It is the folks that I've met, which aren't a ton. I know it's, it is. But, yeah. No, we're <laughs> no. We're. I think we have a reputation of being a really collegial department yeah. on campus, which is really nice. Um, and I, I, I got really lucky because you know, like academia can be kind of weird. Yes. Um, <laughs> in so many ways. In so many ways. So I'm really fortunate to have a department with senior colleagues who yeah. really like look out for junior faculty, and yeah. so that's like. That's really nice. And so we're trying to, you know, keep that keep that going. It, it was hard during the pandemic, for sure. for sure. Like, you know, we do a lot of, like, we'll just go out and eat. And yeah. We'll do fun things yeah. together. We'll go to museums. And that was not possible during the pandemic. Right. So, right. You know, so we're trying to yeah. get that back. But it's hard. <laughs> it is. It is. That's the... Are you, do you go to theater often? Or, I do. Yeah. Like, have you noticed, because, like, Center Theater Group, right? They just truncated yep. their mm-hmm. season. Um, but that, like, reluctance to come back into shared spaces and sometimes then being back in shared spaces and watching people not know how to be. There was this, have you, so I saw this, I saw this lately, um, and it was a meme, because I look at memes. Oh, yeah. But, like, um, there's apparently a trend of people throwing stuff at performers on stage and, like, hitting them. Yeah. And it's like, what is going on? Right. (laughs) You know? Um, Like, there's this weird, I wonder if it's, like, also, during the pandemic, so much of our lives Mm. have been virtual, and Mm. there's, you know, all sorts of really interesting, like, research and conversations happening around what does that do to our brain yes. in a way how much does yeah. that dehumanize like yes. people right yeah. when you're not in person and um and this is i mean i'm totally just like pulling this out of where you know thin air mm. but i also wonder if there is a sort of um more intensified parasocial dynamic going on yeah. with celebrities right oh, during yeah. the pandemic because they were more present in present online in ways that perhaps they hadn't been before exactly and providing you know you know different kinds of support and yeah exactly um, exactly and so then when you're in person then yeah. you know i mean it's it's really fascinating um yeah what happened with the center theater group is kind of kind of wild um yeah. i have you know i have friends in the cambodian rock band yeah. who and they were gonna be here in I think January, mm-hmm. and that got canceled. Yeah. And um, I mean, you know, Snehal is a acquaintance friend, yeah. and um, he's sort of stepping into, I think, a challenging position. Um, I mean, I, he's he's great, you know. Yeah. He's shepherded East West players, you know, um, pretty well, and I've been part of that community. So, you know, it's it's definitely a really interesting time. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm hopeful that for people who are 
going into leadership positions or broadening their their leadership capacities within theater um whether it's as directors or artistic directors or um you know directors of giving or whatever it is um education that like what so often happens in government right where it's like oh there's a crisis Let's blame it on the new person somehow, some way, some shape, and form. Even though no one in like has ever had to deal with this before, yeah. Like we will somehow hold them up to the same standards of normal everyday processes, yeah. Even though nothing is nothing is as it was exactly, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, heavy topic for sure. It is. It is. Speaking of heavy topics, you're a singer songwriter. I am what a singer-songwriter. But, like, I was, Jumping around. I was looking at your website. Uh, I was. I, Which one? Well, I was looking at the archive, and at first, in my head, I had it, it saved in my brain as A-R-K because I was like, that's so freaking cool, archive. And, like, the fact that archive and an arc and an arc is something that carries, like, things throughout time and saves them. And, oh, my gosh. Right? <laughs> Uh, and but all, but it's cute, <laughs> like, so it's weird, and like you gotta queer, yeah. like you know gotta reclaim <laughs> the the spaces which have been made like uh, unsafe for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was and looking at that I erasure like, of dis- like <laughs> erasure of our history and things right? like that. Like that's yeah, yeah, and a living map. I was like, that's so freaking cool. Yeah. So we're not the only ones who do it, but yeah. as far as I know, we're one of only two that have like user content. So the other is querying the map. Okay. Um, and uh, the person who started that is Lucas La Rochelle, and um, their I think that their their map is like it, it's like it's almost like post secret for queer stories, but geolocated. Like it's really cool, awesome. yeah. you know. Like it's a really sort of simple interface, and but I I think that there is like this um, sort of. Desire or yeah. drive to um, not only tell stories. Like, there's a lot of projects out there that are telling stories, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Um, I'm just really interested in maps. I like these yeah. physical locations. Did you ever have one of, like, I lived in New York for 2004 to, 2005 to 2009, and I swore by the Not for Tourist Guide, which was this, oh. like, little um, almost moleskin sized book where it would have, it would have maps of each sort of neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Each like like Soho and um, and the village and and it would have three different maps and one would be like this is where the sundries are, like the Rite Aid and the Duane Reed and the you know where the <laughs> right, and then one would be like restaurants and and yeah. and clubs and things, and then one would be like historical and um, special locations. And as you were saying that, I was just like, oh my god. How cool would it be to have like a like that kind? And there would be like little pockets where you could store things, kind of like a moleskin, oh, that's cool. right? Yeah. Um, like to have that sort of thing, a physical artifact, right? Yeah. Um, for a, like a queer space for like map. queer spaces, yeah. yeah, like a current queer space map. I think, and they, even they historical to... too, to be like you're just like what whatever you're looking at right now. Here's like what it was. Yeah, they had um they had the Damron Guide. Yeah. In like the. I want to say the 50s and 60s, um, and it was a physical book mm-hmm. of like bars right. and queer spaces. And right. so uh, we haven't mapped all that out yet. We're working on like building up content. Yeah. Um, but that's something that I know the one archive through USC. Um, they have a Damron guide map yeah. map thing, which is just I mean I don't know like being able to sort of map out physical spaces is so cool. There's yeah. a book called Gay New York, and it's by George Chauncey. I read it when I was in like 
grad school, but he has like he he's talking about um, queer life mm-hmm. essentially in like the early 1900s, yeah, when it was so hidden. But he also has like addresses in New York mm-hmm. um, of where these like gay bathhouses were and things like that. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, how cool would it be to sort of move yeah. around the city? And say, look, that location there, that right. used to be, like, a really important gay bathhouse. And, oh, look, it's a Chipotle or something, right? <laughs> right. right. Like, there is, um, there is a lesbian bar in San Francisco. I want to say it's a Lexington, but I, I might be wrong. So, you know, don't quote me yeah. on that. Um, but a, a former lesbian bar is now a T-Mobile store, <laughs> right? And so we're talking about, like, actual sort of erasures, yes. you know, f- like, erasures of these yeah. physical spaces. Um, we're working with um, with Elena Rosa, who is an artist, filmmaker, like, all, all around creative, immersive mm-hmm. storyteller, and she had this amazing project called L-Bar, where she goes in and she essentially reconstructs in a digital space yeah. these defunct lesbian bars yeah. using like interviews that she has done with like owners or people who used to go there and just sort of paraphernalia and ephemera um, from that age and, you know and yeah. then just reconstructs it and um, she had built it on this platform called Oye which was okay. a side project by the creators of Snapchat or something <laughs> and it's it, it was this cool sort of space where you could essentially like visit or like virtually go into spaces but yeah. also have a video camera and so you had the little circle with your face in it oh as video. like ar style ar style yeah. sort of and then yeah. she would have these bars constructed where you could put your little oh ar avatar on like seats oh. or sing karaoke like it, it was really cool it was really cool so <laughs> we're actually so cool yeah so we're actually because oye as a platform they keep on threatening to like close down and they've been threatening this for like almost a year yeah (laughs) and they're still around but there's always like that sort of right right right? so one of the things that at the archive we're trying to do Mm -hmm. is to try to create the functionalities to put immersive storytelling spaces like that um you know on in a space where like you know anyone can sort of go on and mm-hmm. upload like pictures or yeah. move things around or whatever like we're not we haven't quite conceptualized that part yet but yeah. that that would be like really cool i think did you see the um the van gogh the immersive van gogh or the... i didn't i heard about it though um, but i heard it was like it... really pretty cool yeah. yeah i just it struck me because you said the word immersive and then my brain went what if, like you walked into a space and like yeah, and then things just like people popped up, or like the walls changed, and suddenly you were in that one space in San Francisco, or you were in that yeah. space in Berlin, or you were in that space. So this is our, this is our. I'm telling you, like all of our blue sky, like yes. ideas. But we were like, it would be so cool because there's like AR like overlay abilities where you take your yeah, phone yeah. and you sort of use a camera and you overlay it. Like in Pokemon so, Go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're like, that would be cool if we like, if we were able to, and we actually have. So um, the archive is. Uh, in you know interdisciplinary was it an interdisciplinary collaboration between mm-hmm. right now it's three departments nice. across campus so we have computer science students working on the development part nice. art students are doing all of the um, user interface and user experience design yeah um, as well as a branding and everything and then we've had comm students who have done like um you know PR and social media and things like that and so it's been really cool seeing the students in particular Mm -hmm. like work together and um and figure out 
you know, figure out stuff yeah. and not figure out stuff. But um, it's been like, like that's something that we're really, really proud of is like that um, it's completely student designed and student developed oh. up to this point. Um, so Zachary Vernon is yeah. the other, um, the other co-founder, and so he's in art. Like I don't know who your audience is, so I'm giving all these calls. I don't know who my audience is. <laughs> it's whoever is listening at that moment. But that's good info. Yeah. Because I was actually like rehearsing because I'm like I'm sure Laura's gonna ask me what talent is right and how do we define well, yeah. talent right? We, that's we, I'm gonna ask you that question. <laughs> of course I am. That's part of the thing. <laughs> talent is just you know like what we think of as a you know like it, that you're higher up on this artificially socially constructed hierarchy of skills yes, that exactly. are you know in in where we are now probably mostly based on like you know western ideals of what skill and whatever are sure. and, you know sure. <laughs> if you if you had been asked when you were say like it before before hitting teenage world but like certainly like after age seven somewhere between seven and 13 if someone had been like how do you define talent what do you think you, your answer might have been. This is like I'm going to get PTSD from that. So I I grew up like classically trained You're musician, welcome. right? <laughs> this is actually therapy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was uh, I I grew up a uh, classically trained pianist, yeah. as many good Asian daughters were. <laughs> and so my idea of talent yeah. would be how well can you play Rachmaninoff right as he intended it yes to be. because you have a pipeline right. and you know because there's a pipeline yeah. and then you have to play music well enough to go into conservatory right yes um by the time you're 17 yeah um and that was sort of the path yeah <laughs> you know um and it was really you know, so that was talent because you're essentially measuring your like, you know, you're like, okay, so is that creative or are you just like right. parroting what you have seen other people do and mm -hmm. trying to achieve this idea of what other people have done? And right. obviously, like classical music is um, is a lot more expansive than yes. that, and there's a lot yeah. of places you can go in that. And I think it's like, you know, people are always like disparaging of cover, like covering people's music and stuff. And I'm like, classical right. music is great, and yeah. it is like the ultimate cover genre. Yeah, right, it is the ultimate cover genre. And also, like, you know, let's be honest, Mozart when he was writing like all of his stuff, there are no recordings of how he right. would play it. We have no idea what like the original conception sounds like. We don't know yeah. if like, you know, when he says Allegro, what that means. Yes, how Allegro yeah. is your Allegro, Mozart. Hmm? Yeah, what is, yeah. yeah he hasn't or, told me. He hasn't told, yeah. And you know, we don't know if like, you know, what his, what his idea of fortissimo is. Right. Or what his idea of like, Sforzando, right? you know, like yeah. we don't know all this stuff, yeah. so you know. Anyway, so that, that, that's it's like talent is like <laughs> so sort of so so subjective and yes. so based in these normative ideological ideas of how well you skillfully manipulate an object, right? Right. So, right. like. It is a material thing that makes, like, you know, mm -hmm. sound. Sure. How do you know that that's skillfully manipulated? Yes. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I go a lot in a... So, you know, I'm a critical cultural scholar in yes. my you know, profession, and I think 
Yeah, critical cultural scholarship is great because it also helps you become more aware of like yourself and yeah. the world that you live in and whatever. And so um, there's this French philosopher, Pierre Bourdieu, right? Mm. And he talks about like um, he's he's this the scholar who who um, sort of has conceptualized like cultural capital and different mm, forms of capital, mm-hmm. social capital, and how that ties into like class and all that. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, he has this book called Distinctions, and he also has this great quote where he says, it's in Distinctions. He goes, um, taste classifies, and it classifies the classifier. Oh. And what he means by that, right, mm-hmm. is what you think is good art mm-hmm. or good talent or good skill and whatever, right? What you think that classifies you, mm-hmm. right? Um, or it, it classifies the world. It classifies the world of right. art. But then by doing that, you also classify yourself. Yeah into a higher class to say, I know what's good. I say that's good, and so mm-hmm. therefore that's good. And if I'm the one in power and I'm dictating that, then that becomes what everyone else has to think of as right. good. Right? right? And that's um, sort of how all of our ideas of like high art has yes. come in, where we gatekeep and we keep right. people out who don't meet a certain standard, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we do this everywhere. It's like talent is not just in art or music. It's no, also, right? it's, it's not. Yeah, it's in like it's in education, it's in academia, yeah. it's in, um, yeah. it's in sports, it's sports in and food, yeah. it's in everything, everything. Yeah, like what is it? What does a talented chef look like? Yeah, or like a talented employee, right? Yeah. Like at, at what yeah. job? Any job? Any job? Yeah. Like, are you talented with spreadsheets? Yeah, that's talented a talented parent, right? Yeah. Right? Oh my god! Like, what does a p- talented parent look like? You know, <laughs> and it would change from culture to culture too. Changes from culture. To, it probably changes from day to day. Yeah, changes from context to context. It right? changes from like, generation to generation. Hundred percent. Yeah, um, you know. So it's like we don't know. Are you talented in walking? Right. Some people are not. Yeah. Some, some people, people are not. Will but stop in the middle of the street. I know, but people behind them. But maybe they're talented in being creative and walking and yes. rupturing what we think of as normative walking. That's right. Right. Like, so, I mean, after a while, (laughs) after a while, like this completely gets like, you know, anarchic and now what is the structure of talent? And, you know, like, so I I have this, you mentioned I'm a Mm singer-songwriter. And um, one of the things that I've noticed about my music is that, um, you know, there's this, and again, I don't know who your audience is. I'm a huge nerd, so I throw out like scholars that I've read and that I admire. So this, Please do. Right. Yeah. You as you should. <laughs> because I'm like, we're gonna if really no one knows here. them, they can look them up. And if I don't know them, I'm for sure gonna look them up. Hundred percent. But I mean this guy, he's you know, he this guy, his name's uh, Louis Althusser. He was writing yes. in like the sixties and seventies, you know. Are you familiar with his work? Uh, only briefly, briefly from like critical theory classes from right. MA and lit. Yeah. Hundred percent, yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, so he has this, like, you know, he talks about um, ideology, mm-hmm. mostly, and this idea where, like, you know, ideology is this, like, you know, set of beliefs and values and, and actions and whatever that flow yeah. from these beliefs that we hold as, like, normal or typical or whatever um, that we don't question. We and hold so, these truths to be self-evident. Right, all of these, right? It's not self-evident. You should be questioning. Um, <laughs> questioning truths, yes. especially big T truths. Yes. Um, and so, you know, he, he has this um, he has this concept of interpolation, and interpolation mm-hmm. is like you are. I mean, you know, he 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 says it kind of simply, where it's like if you are being hailed in society, you say "Hey, you," and you turn and you go "Who me?" Right? That's the process of interpolation, where the "Hey, you," you feel that it is addressing you. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so I think this process of interpolation, though, it goes further. It's like it's it is um, positioning. So for me, I um, yeah, I think of it as you're positioning yourself within this larger structure mm-hmm. of ideology and whatever that is, this larger structure or this larger framework of certain values, beliefs, systems, yeah. actions, behaviors that conform um, into uh, into this one thing. So in music, um, as a singer-songwriter, I often question, like, what is how much am I interpolating myself mm. into my training in Western classical music, yeah. into the creations that I do now? How creative are they, right? Mm. Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, right? They're um, critical critical scholars writing in like the 1940s and 1950s. And they talk about um, pseudo-individuation, oh. where we have like the same choral structure, the same musical structures mm-hmm. that we just see over and over again. And their argument is much more around capitalism and culture industries yeah. where we as humans, right, we like the familiarity. We like you know, the four chord song, sure. right? Sure. You can make basically any piece of music by only knowing four chords right. um, on guitar. Uh, and that structure um, is sort of... Um, it, like, it lays the groundwork for what we feel as familiar, so mm-hmm. we reach out for that, right? We reach out for music that feels familiar. Hollywood has a three-act structure that you can mm-hmm. literally, like, set your watch to, Yeah. right? It's like something happens, something is going to happen at, you know, like a third of the way in. You know right. something's going to happen. Then half, mid at midpoint, yeah. at two-thirds of the way in, at ten minutes before the end, right? Like, right. these are really familiar structures that we, we're not even aware of mm-hmm. um, for the most part but we're drawn to them for some reason we right. our emotions are tied up in them right, right. and so um, when we think of talent mm-hmm. right we often think about how closely can we sort of um, adhere to sure. these structures and, and these skills yeah which is not like again I, I think that's a really problematic definition of of, of talent and I think that there's a lot of and what has also been more mainstream is people who challenge that mm-hmm. that convention as well right and we yeah. say that that's talent so yeah. it, so it's it's really interesting um, this is a very very long way to get back to my point to say I'm a singer songwriter and one of my challenges is how much I have been interpolated into these structures of classical yeah. music yeah. and <clears throat> one of the exercises that I'm like currently doing um when I'm sort of writing or rehearsing or jamming or thinking of music is this way of trying to get out of that. And um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I I mentioned my partner's a drummer. We'll go and jam. And First of all, how lucky that you have a partner who's a drummer. Because drums, like, the one thing that I wish, if I had a magic, like, genie person coming going, like, this is what you... Percussion makes me lose my mind with how amazing it is. It, it is. It's like there's like there's so many facets to it. And I think that, um, you know, beyond anything, there's like a beat mm-hmm. that I think we feel more than we yeah. intellectualize. And yeah, it yeah. allows us to sort of like it, it allows us to be out of our heads a little bit and yeah. just feel the beat. But um, sorry. I, no, no, no. It's totally fine. But she's, uh, you know, she's been great. I, this is why I'm like, I, I would love for her to be on your podcast and yeah. open it up to non NL people. Um, but she's been actually really good at trying to push me to get 
out of this idea that everything needs a structure. And even if it's just like, um, I would assume that you're interested, you're, you're familiar with like the Meisner technique. And yes, acting. although I haven't studied it a lot. I have done some Meisner technique, but my, my focus has been this postmodern um, performance theory called Viewpoints, okay. which was started in NYU by Mary oh, Overly at hey. the Experimental Theater Week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I have done a little bit of Meisner work, and I've worked with people who are, like, Meisner trained. Um, but that, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not super familiar with this, so feel mm-hmm. free to correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. My understanding is it's a technique of being in the moment mm-hmm. and, like, taking what the other person gives you and responding. Yeah. And so um, I'm trying to sort of internalize that um, in these sort of rehearsal or music sessions where it's just like, okay, you know, you don't have to think about rhyming. You don't have to think about... (laughs) Is it motion sensor? The the lights just went out and it was very... Right? So so I'm trying to actually incorporate that a little bit more. And and it it goes against... it, It completely goes against anything that I've, like been trained to do right I was, I was like classical music and then i was yes. in marching band which is like ah. a very rigid sort of right and then i was a yes. drum major so yes. i was like you know there's like there's a lot of rigidity <laughs> to my musical upbringing yeah. and so like being allowed to make mistakes right. or being allowed to sort of um like play music in a way that doesn't conform to these rules yeah, yeah. of music is both liberating and incredibly scary right totally um because it feels like i'm just making mistakes mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. and you know it, with classical music training or with a marching band <laughs> training or you are not allowed to like right. make a mistake you cannot be out of step you cannot be out of sync right you like, <laughs> you can't play the wrong note right um so that's been really um a very different experience yeah and going back to like what talent is is like, and I've had this like you know I I've had the, the dean is not the only person who has like ref, refused to jam with me, <laughs> which I am very sad about. That can be on the record. <laughs> that can totally be on the record. Um, there, what I have you ever done any CSU summer arts? Either no, as, I should I? <laughs> oh, you so should. Um, but what? So I've I've done it a few times, both as a, primarily as a student, but also once as a, a guest artist. But uh, so viewpoints, this performance based, uh, this physical based performance theory, um, comes from dance, but it also comes from jazz, and it also comes from postmodernism, oh, and it yeah. also comes from art, and it comes from so many things. And it was to put a, a language to this thing that is has no, you know, that is both universal, but also like has. So um, Mary broke um, the elements of creativity into shape, space, time, emotion, movement, and story. Um, and she developed these tools and laboratories, and one of them is called playing pool on an egg-shaped table. And one is called Doing the Unnecessary. Um, And she, but it's very much that, like, literally the exploration is enough, right? You don't, there aren't any rules, right, other than to just keep exploring, to keep doing the work, to keep finding out. Like, how many times if you draw a square with your finger over it? on the table <laughs> you know if you if you do a thing like can you repeat it so that it's, it's 
precise, but also you, you know it's not precise, right? Because like something has shifted every time, like a piece of your molecules have come off and like nothing can ever be the same and yet you are repeating it. So what is changing and then like leaning into the change and like letting that happen, let that shift and let that flow. Yes. Um, and yeah, so this is all to say that at Summer Arts, when we were studying viewpoints, um, there's so many other disciplines happening like there'll be um, animate, an animation workshop there'll be a jazz workshop there'll be choreography there'll be and every so often they'll do stuff together so we had people from uh, the jazz workshop come bring their instruments they like got all and in, in like a big old space right and they were just jamming and then we would just move and we would get in and some people would come out when they were tired or when like they didn't serve the moment anymore and you know and, and same with the musicians and sometimes musicians would come in and be like in us with us and uh-huh. it was so and, and now I'm like can we have an arts and letters music viewpoints jam can we let's make this happen why not let's make this happen we have space we, we can have go spaces into, like, the, into the theater and just right like- yeah like all musicians welcome all humans with bodies who want to move around welcome um, the person who should put that together is Linda Greenberg. Oh, I will totally. You should, well, she's going to be the interim chair for music. That's right. She semester. is. That's right. Um, yes. <laughs> she Because before, so before the pandemic, she was yeah. putting together a talent show. Of like, she said like that. Faculty, faculty and staff talent <laughs> show. Yeah. And I had, I had like written a song yes. to play at the talent show, which did not happen because of the yeah. pandemic. Um, so... It was funny. She got to hear it because I played it. Um, I was asked to play at so David Olson's husband is a dancer at yeah, yeah. a dance studio, and they had a for um, art, was it like Art Night Pasadena or something? Yeah. He opened his space, and then he had me play a couple things. And Linda, so cool. Linda came, and I was like, Linda, this song is for you because yeah. I couldn't get I didn't get to play it at the talent show, and I've been <laughs> holding on to it for three years. Um, oh. So she, yeah. So we should, yes, make Linda this Greenberg. Viewpoint music music jam, yeah, for A and L. Yeah, oh, it's it's gonna happen. Um, but like I love that idea of like doing the square over and over because mm-hmm. I I think sometimes when you put constraints on um, what you're doing, it mm-hmm. allows you to sort of um, it allows you to sort of expand, yeah. uh, like be more expansive yeah. in your experience in it. Like yeah. it, it's funny because I so I teach like <laughs> like. <laughs> on the other side of it, which is, I was teaching research methods, and I teach mm-hmm. research methods, you know, qualitative research methods a lot. Yeah. And I tell students, I'm like, you have to limit what you're looking at because it's right. only when you limit it that you can actually start like yes. unpacking the meaning behind this very small lens that you're looking through. So mm-hmm. even if it's like playing a chord over, like one of the things that I've been trying to do um, to help sort of. Um, like get me out of this idea yeah. that everything has to be sort of rigidly whatever and and, and also move in the way that like classical mm-hmm. music moves is to be like what happens if I stay on just one chord or I stay yeah. on two chords and I play over and over and over yeah. again what comes out of that when you're just doing that or even one note what happens if you're just playing one note yeah right? go um, full Philip Glass yeah 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 or you know like yeah or do like you know like Cage's work yeah Cage where it's like Four minutes, Four minutes 33, and thirty seconds. <laughs> Thirty-three seconds. Yes. I mean that's great. I've seen it. I, I mean, there's prepared some, piano. Yeah. Or or just I've seen it played with orchestra. Yeah. I've seen it played with chorus. I've seen mm-hmm. it played with a string quartet. <laughs> you know. I'm gonna do a cover of it. 
that's, that'll be great. Um, Do you and, have a cat? No, I have a horse. <laughs> it's so funny. Moses today was like, you should have Lena Chow on the podcast. I said, well, I'm trying to wrap up for this season. And she never responded, but I'm, I'm sure she would be great. Like, she's she now the, the interim the interim dean of <laughs> yes. okay lena chow is the reason why i have a horse so you yes. know do uh, tell yeah 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 so my horse was my um my accidental pandemic adoption <laughs> <laughs> kind of a big one <laughs> you know people always ask i get this question like every other person who i tell asks so where do you keep her uh-huh. and i'm like oh she's on my couch she watches netflix with me <laughs> Where do you think I keep her? I keep her in a barn. Yes. <laughs> um, in South Pass. Anyway, Lena um, has, uh, so during the pandemic, she, you know, she, yeah. she has horses. And um, I've always loved horses. I wanted, that was like on my bucket list, right? Like nice. it was maybe like 15 years ago or so. I kid yeah. you not. Like I found this recently. Um, 15 years ago, I had made a list of like oh just life bucket items, right? Yeah. And there were things like, you know, um, you know, like just get my PhD or, you know, and get a job that I love and, you know, like find a partner who I, yeah. you know, can, you know, live with and build a life with or whatever. And like, you know, other things. And then the last thing on it was own a horse. And I'm like, this is such a throwaway thing because that's never going to happen. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, you gotta have something to like, yeah, just throw it out in yeah. the universe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then, like, during the pandemic, I was, like, you know, cooped up and losing muscle mass like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, like we all were. And I'm like, hang on a second. Lena has horses. I'm very close with Lena. I should call her and ask if I could just, like, hang out with her horses. <laughs> right? And so I go, and I was like, I, I, I was, I mean, you know, I was sort of joking. I was like, well, she's a senior colleague, and I need to sort of, like just you know keeping her good graces yeah. so so i'm gonna go and like clean out her stalls for her i'll do like physical labor you know yeah. um and muck I'll her muck stalls, out the stalls I'll yeah. muck, absolutely i'll muck out the stalls which by the way is incredibly good exercise for anyone who like doesn't want to go to the gym and wants to hang out oh, with horses yeah like just muck out stalls it's like repetitive motion it's mm-hmm. like going to the gym yeah but you're also being like super productive. Right. And, and you get to be near horses. And you get to be near horses. So I did that and then I would <clears throat> like ride her horses, yeah. uh, ride ride her horse sometimes. Amazing. Um and it was it was great. But at the time, my horse's name is Bonnie. So Bonnie was at the at the barn and um her owner was just kind of absent a lot. Oh, okay. And um I think he had been trying to like like give her away or sell mm-hmm. her or something um, for a while and so at some point like Lena's like I think he might be ready to like you know find her new home would you be interested <laughs> and I'm like uh <laughs> um so that's how I ended up with that's amazing with Bonnie <laughs> So, so you, no cat, you have a horse. No cat, I have a yeah. horse who kind of can be like a cat sometimes mm-hmm. because she just sort of ignores me unless I have treats. Yeah, very cat. Very cat-like. Um, you know, 
less the crawling all over me part because that would be painful. That's probably good. That's yeah. in everyone's best interest, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I've been, I mean, you know, like I've been stepped on. She's like accidentally stepped on me. I've been accidentally bitten. Oh. She's knocked me down. I mean, yeah. you know, all sorts. But that's that's what happens. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, if 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 you were to be asked in let's say your mid twenties, if someone had asked you the question. How do you define talent? <laughs> what do you think you might have answered then? I mean, probably similar. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I started sort of thinking about complicating this idea of talent yeah. until um, probably well into my 30s. Okay. You know, and... <clears throat> Post-PhD or during? Probably post um, or during my master's. Okay. So, um, you know, I think it was during my master's, which I did in like my mid mid to late 20s was when I really started questioning like what's normal mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what is normal like what is normal yeah. and things that you know we take or we hold on to so tightly about what is normal mm -hmm. or you know if we push it a little bit what is good or bad and yes. then if we push it into what is good or bad music or mm -hmm. what is talented or not music like that is so determined by a those in power, mm -hmm. but also B how much we have um, we have sort of been interpolated into this idea of yeah. good or good or bad music. I mean, I took a I took a sound studies class right yeah. in um, uh, grad school, and it, this was at USC. This was during uh -huh. my PhD, and uh, I loved it because it was like, you know, what is the difference between music? and sound mm. and noise. Yeah. And so, you know, we've heard a lot yeah. about, oh, rap music, oh, that, it's that noise that mm -hmm. kids listen to these days or something, right? Yeah. And so we don't stop to think about, that's a really interesting statement because you have just categorized, um, you have just categorized a genre of music that has emerged mm -hmm. from, um, sort of from marginalized communities yeah. that specifically critique um, the institutionalization of art and music. And you just characterize that as noise. It goes back to uh, that pure Bourdieu quote, right? Like the mm -hmm. um, taste classifies and it classifies a classifier. If I classify, if I classify as, that as noise, I am reinforcing mm -hmm. um, this sort of systemic like systemic idea or institutionalized idea of what music is and right. what sound is which as we know these institutionalized ideas of music and sound are often like based in these sort of western mm -hmm. mostly white ideas of yeah. music mostly white mostly heteronormative mostly, mostly heteronormative patriarchal. yeah all yeah. of right all of the who is in power right mm -hmm. who is the sort of ideological norm right who's telling the story who's telling the story yeah. whose voices are heard right. who gets to categorize things mm -hmm. and we classify rap and hip-hop constantly as noise mm -hmm. and denigrate it in the mainstream as noise or subversive or whatever right, right? um rather than music that's that's really problematic. That reinforces yeah. the social dynamics that we have around race, around difference, around mm -hmm. people, right? And it keeps us in this closed-minded idea of who gets to make music, who yeah. gets to be creative, who gets to express their voices, yeah. right? So that's, um, 
you know, so I think in my early 20s, I don't think I would have conceptualized that later in my 20s and then into my 30s, I think, is, is when I um, sort of started thinking more about, you know, what is sort of, um, what is music, what is talent, what mm-hmm. is art, um, you know, how do you categorize good art? Right. Right. Um, you know, the process of curation is like fascinating mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. how do you categorize like so i was uh, i studied film i was uh, i was a filmmaker for a very short period of time yeah. after college right like how do you categorize a good film right you know um what are the standards that come from like good lighting and then and then you know there, there, there's so many sort of examples throughout film history about people who have subverted that or resisted that or right. found ways around it and you know and and then even so so here's here's the crux of it right here's the crux <laughs> is <clears throat> is that all of these ideas of talent or whatever is going to be cyclical mm-hmm. and all sort of framed under um, cap- like capitalism and the ability and and the you know the um, necessity of like paying rent and, and things like yep. that right <laughs> um, so that being said it's like okay so we can have something that's really subversive mm-hmm. like hip hop right and then that can be subversive, but then that becomes popularized. So right. how much of that then gets appropriated by a capitalist system for right. the culture industry, right? That pushes this idea of selling talent and mm-hmm. a certain kind of talent. And so, you know, at what point is anything truly subversive? What are we subverting? Are we subverting, like, traditional ideas of talent, mm-hmm. right? Are we subverting capitalist systems in which the culture industries exist, in which music and art exist, in which we have sort of like the economies of talent, you know, who gets to decide who is talented, right? There's this whole thing with like, um, you know, Lizzo that just came up Mm. this week, Yeah, you know, and, you know, how much, like, I I mean, I'm not going to comment on on that, but it does bring up these questions of um, how much does you know, does a person's talent get impacted by what's going on in other parts or in the business side right. or or whatnot? Right. Um, like the way that if, if these are the power structures in place and if I am, if there are any boundaries, whether they are additional boundaries or just the existing boundaries for me to work within those power structures, you know, can, is it possible for a person to enter into that sort of relationship and navigation without being changed. Well, of course not, because we all change. Like, that is the constant. But it's like, how do I retain the th- the thing that got me in, in interested in making this art or, you know, pursuing this talent or whatever it is in the first place? And, like, I think you said, like, the, the purity of the thing, right? Like, how do I... Is there a way to be within the system without letting the system, like take over take over yeah i don't know but i i would even go a step further to say you know we we think of creativity as something that emerges from within us Mm -hmm. right and we think of that as i I love that you use the word pure or purity Mm -hmm. right of something or like the other word that i think gets thrown around a lot is authenticity Mm -hmm. or authentic or how do you are you authentically expressing yourself and it's like um and i absolutely sort of subscribe to these ideas that like creativity emerges from emotion that Mm -hmm. and that um art or creativity is an emotional outlet for um for at least i can speak for myself is that it was for me right um for music but then how much of my emotions and what i feel 
have been conditioned to, sure. right, to yeah. um, whatever system has been sort yeah. of put in place. So there's there's always this sort of like, you know, chicken or the yeah. egg type of thing. Like, um, have you read Stuart Hall in... I haven't, but I was just... No, yes, no, well, I haven't. What were you going to say? You say first, and then I'll go. Okay, so Stuart Hall has this whole process of... Um, or he's conceptualized, like, this process of encoding and decoding, where mm-hmm. we where producers of things encode certain sort of symbols and structures and elements and functions in whatever they're producing into, he's talking about TV programs, but really I think it's any form of creation. So even yeah. I mean, even if it's a spreadsheet, right? Like sure. all the stuff is gonna be sure. like encoded and then it gets decoded by whoever's on the other side. So either yes. an audience or like consumer yeah. or whatever, right? <clears throat> and the whole point is, we encode stuff based on how we understand ideological structures in society, mm-hmm. how we understand our value systems and beliefs and things mm-hmm. like that. We'll encode that, um, you know, into right, a message or an artifact, and then the person who decodes it, if they match the ideological frameworks and structures and beliefs of the producer, that message is going to go through really easily, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then what happens is then that feeds into, it's almost cyclical, right? It feeds into this whole structure of what then becomes the ideological norm, what Mm -hmm. then becomes the structural Mm -hmm. norm of... Confirmation biases. Right. Confirmation biases or whatever, like, oh, people like the Hollywood 3X structure. We're going to keep on making movies that conform to this. Oh, people like songs that sound like this, mm-hmm. right? They like songs with these four chords. Mm-hmm. We're going to make more of that. We're going to make it slightly different so people will still buy it. This was Adorn on a Horkheimer's like point. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going to still buy it, um, but we're going to make it slightly different, but it's going to be the same. So after a while, they hate it enough that they're going to reach out for the next thing and the yeah. next thing. Like it becomes cyclical in that way. Um, so I do really wonder a lot of times when we see something that is really subversive, at what point does that then become right. like the norm? At what point does that right. become sort of interpolated into that cultural mm-hmm. cultural industry? Right. Yeah. So, what were you gonna? No, it was uh, because yesterday was James Baldwin's birthday, and so I was like posted on LinkedIn because I was like everyone should you should read James Baldwin if you haven't before, and if you have this is great it's his day do it, um, and I was like if there's too much out there and you're like oh so there um, there's a site called the Marginalian um, Maria Popova, and it used to be called Brain Pickings back when I first started reading it but she just writes articles and reflections and shares resources and links and things to um that's a major distillation of what this huge thing is that she does but um so like she she often will write on baldwin and bring in baldwin i was like just go type in his name and like read one of the articles that pops up and one that had popped up to me when i had done that and like on the first page of the results was about from talking about Giovanni's room and how he um, talks about the uh, illusion of, of choice that like we can choose who we fall in love with or that like but mm-hmm. but but you couldn't even choose to be here you know and or who your parents were or like where where you were born so like there there are some things that you really aren't controlling even if you think you are and like it's it, this illusion so you know we think we have and I, that just I was going, oh, yeah, because how much of me is determined not only by the stories that I 
actively and consciously consumed, whether those stories were in the form of my mom talking to me or my teachers or my friends or the books I read from age three on or, you know, the things I watched. And what about the things that were I was unconsciously consuming, right? Because they're just around me and surrounded me or were um, subconsciously being encoded by people around me. And then also what about like the epigenetics of it all? The thing, the things that my mother does because these things happened to her in her childhood and they happened to her because her mother made these choices and her father made these choices and they, that, you know, and it's like it's a generational <laughs> dynamic right. type of, right. type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the, when I came here today, mm-hmm. right, did I have the choice to show up in like my PJs? Yes. Right. I could, but social norms would not I mean, it's a podcast I could be sitting in my PJs for all the listeners <laughs> know, right? like, I am full not full costume happening right now just um, so absolutely 100% but I also do this with my students I'm like yeah. when you come into the room mm-hmm. first day of class right mm-hmm. you come into the room you're all sitting in your seats mm-hmm. why who yes. told you to do that you sound like Tanya came here right now <laughs> <laughs> um, right like but yeah why who why who told you mm-hmm. to do that Right. And then you're probably going to sit in that same seat the next time you come into this room yeah. for this class. Why? Or you're still going to sit, mm-hmm. right? You're not going to stand mm-hmm. in front of a class. You know, and I have never, I am surprised that this has not happened, where after I say that, the next the next class, students all line up in front of the room or they don't sit, right? I haven't had that happen except when I taught the EAP program, oh, the early entrance yeah, program yeah. here on campus. And they're all like, you know, 15. middle school. Like, they're all like, you know, between the ages of 12 and 15. And... After I gave that lecture, the next week, they did. They all stood up in front of the class, right? And I'm like, so there's something that's very interesting that's going on here Mm -hmm. where, you know, like, I've been wondering about that. Like, have they not been so, like, sort of, right, rigidly interpolated into the system where even after being told that they didn't have a choice, they didn't feel the need to assert that choice or make right. a different choice right. you know and like I, I mean I'm not when they did it I, I sort of I, I sort of like was like okay haha very funny y'all sit down <laughs> but the fact that like the fact that they did that yeah. was actually very encouraging because it's like yes. oh you decided to make a different you all collectively decided to make a different choice mm-hmm. so how many of you actually didn't make a choice and just followed the crowd. So there's, right. Right, so there's right. all sorts of... And the fact that right? you had told them that there was another choice, right? So um, whether or not it was in their consciousness already that, like, this is so weird. Like, why do you do this? Why do we always come in? Like, I don't even, like, why don't more teachers set their rooms up in circles? Like, why can't we have class yeah. outside? Even if they had been thinking that. The fact that you had said it. Said it, Right? Yeah. So now that this has happened, chicken or the egg. Permission. Right? right? Yeah. Hundred percent. And there's a there's another scholar that I really like, uh, James Carey, mm-hmm. who um, he had uh, he, so he wrote this really um, I I think a really seminal. I, I make all of my cultural studies students read it, yes. right? And it's called um, it's called a cultural approach to communication, and he talks about the difference between uh, the transmission model of communication, which has um, governed sort of um, communication studies for decades where yeah. it's like this idea where it's you know speaker message receiver mm-hmm. and it's linear um versus a ritual 
model of communication, which is yeah. that we communicate through rituals. We communicate through mm. what we don't say. Yeah. You know, we communicate through um, participation. We learn through participation, mm. right? And so I'm not telling students to sit in their seats. They right. actively participate in upholding yeah. this culture of education. They were communicated that not by somebody, I mean, probably when they were like yeah. five, right? A teacher was probably like, sit in your seat, right? right, right. But like, ever since they have participated in upholding mm -hmm. um upholding this and have communicated it every time they come in and take a seat right. they communicate that to their fellow classmates and reinforce um you know this culture of being seated in, in the classroom yeah. right yeah and for me, I'm like, why do I stay standing? Why don't I sit down? Right. Sitting is comfortable. Oh, yeah. Why don't I do that? Right? <laughs> <laughs> why do I have to be standing up in front of the classroom, pacing around and like, do you find show, that you right? sit? Because I find that I end up perching on like desks and things when I'm teaching. Yeah. Or like, you know, sitting I'll perch. down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll perch or I'll walk. And it's, yeah. it's actually pretty good exercise. I, I know the amount of steps. <laughs> like, the amount of steps that you can take during like an yes. hour and 15 minute lecture is great. Especially yeah. like, you know, my first, um, my first day, well, this is during my new faculty orientation. And I had, we had a faculty member in kinesiology mm -hmm. um, who was talking to us about, I can't remember, some, something pedagogical, but then I remember she talked about how she would walk around the classroom because students sitting all the time, yeah. like they're not gonna pay attention, but if they have to move and track you yes. around the classroom, yeah. it allows movement even as they're sitting. And yeah. she was doing that when we were yeah. doing it. I never forgot that, I'm like, that is such a good idea. So in the large lectures, if I can, I will walk up and down and, oh, yeah. you know, like, if and, and the other thing is, if you're in a large lecture and students are sitting, in the front row, mm -hmm. and you're in the front, and it's usually the students who are the most talkative who sit in the front mm -hmm. row, right? So they're mm -hmm. just talking to you. The students in the back yeah. here, go stand in the back of the right. room so the student in the front has to project. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Like, how do we use space to sort of, anyway, <laughs> oh, yeah. getting like way off track. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's okay. It, one of the reasons to do this in the first place, I will go back to that question that you asked that I may or may not keep the original answer to, is not only to learn more about, because I do think, Hearing hearing somebody say like I'm not talented, right? Um, whether or not I know for sure that they are talented um, from empirical evidence with my own eyes and ears or whatever, or I assume that they are probably talented. Um, I find it hard to believe that there is any human out there who that there's not something that they could do, express, share something, right? Whether, even if it's just the, the, the nature of their compassion or their nature of their presence in space, right? Like that would not somehow make someone else go, oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm moved by that. I, I'm changed by that. I am different now from having experienced that. And maybe they're not consciously thinking that. And what they're thinking is, wow, that person is talented at just being. Like, I just like being around that person. Or that person is talented at weaving or whatever it is they're doing, right? So when I hear people say, and I've said it myself so many times, um, when I hear, hear people say, I'm not talented, I'm like, what do you mean you're not talented? So yeah. when the dean was like, I have different definition of talent, I'm like, how do people define talent? Because that is part of the system that they have created for themselves, whether they have ever thought about it or not. And like, how similar are these definitions? And where do they vastly differ? And where are they, you know, and are they intersectional because of 
culture, because of gender, because of class, because of education? So are they sometimes intersectional for totally unexpected reasons? Yeah. You know? 100%. And I think, like, to go back to what your podcast is about, because I know we've deviated. (laughs) I think that what's interesting about this idea of talent, so a couple thoughts, right? One is whatever we think of as talent, Mm -hmm. right? Because here's the thing. Talent is this really nebulous thing. Yeah. Who knows who has talent? Are you bored? Like, people say that there's innate talent all the time. And I... I don't know how much I believe in it. I think we have certain proclivities toward yeah. some like people who have perfect pitch, right? Like that's mm-hmm. something where like they can pick up really fast. But I think that one of the elements of I guess talent, mm-hmm. right, is persistence. Yeah. And how persistent are you in pursuing this one thing? Because mm-hmm. this goes back to skill, right? How skillful are you at manipulating this thing? And I don't I, I don't think Okay, maybe, maybe it's easier to say what talent isn't, sure, right? Sure. I don't think talent is somebody picking up a guitar for the first time and saying, well, this does not conform to anything, so this is talent. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I want to oh, make that really yeah. clear, yeah. right? It's not somebody who um, picks up uh, picks up something that they have not spent time with uh-huh. and said, well, I'm subverting this idea of what, of what talent sure, is, right? Sure. Um, it's like... Um, I. I do think, though, that it's like, do you have enough skill mm-hmm. with the thing that you want to do to, like, to express mm-hmm. in a way that honors what's what's inside, mm-hmm. right? And it doesn't have to conform, and it doesn't have to conform to, like, what, you know, what people have done before, yeah. right? It, it doesn't have to meet that standard, yeah. right? But are you have you dedicated yourself to to sort of the process of learning and being open Mm -hmm. to learning and being like disavowing yourself of these pre-existing notions of what structure is right the second thing i will say is even doing that Mm -hmm. like being able to spend as much time with pursuing some act of creativity or um instrument or whatever Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I realize that I am sort of talking of, sort of strictly about the arts here, and we can go back to talking about spreadsheets later because I think that it probably fits. But like, being able to do that means that you have time to do it, yes. right? So and not everyone has time. Not everyone has time, and this probably goes back into like you know, again, I say I'm sort of a Marxist at heart, mm-hmm. right? And so it goes back into like um, Marxist notions of what's of, of capitalism and what's the what are the material conditions of survival? Yeah. And if we have a populace that is so entrenched in cycles of capitalism mm-hmm. that we don't have time to do anything mm-hmm. other than ensure our material conditions of survival by right. doing work that does not um, bring us joy, right? Um, we don't have the privilege of of having that time to create, having that that time yeah. to spend, right? Um, the other thing I will say, I you know, I, I mentioned that I grew up a classical musician. I think that the sole reason why I'm really able to be a singer songwriter, no, no, I shouldn't say that. That's actually terrible to say. Um, but like, I think that one thing that has motivated me to be a singer song yeah. singer songwriter now. Um, and having that understanding of music that I do is precisely because my parents had both, like my parents had the capital 
whatever capital it is, social, economic, whatever, mm. to give me piano lessons when I was a kid, yeah. right? They had the economic capital mm -hmm. to support me and my brother um, in that we did not have to spend time after school in high school working to bring money home to the family. Right. We could pursue these extracurriculars that, quote, enrich us, mm -hmm. right, in these ways. Um, you know, and so this it's interesting because we, we had talked about intergenerational dynamics, mm -hmm. and that's another example of that is like, how much do your parents, A, value some of these right. things, um, and then how much sort of material condition ability do they have to allow kids to do that? Yeah. You know, um, and I think that those are also things that play huge roles in, in, I want to say the conversation about talent, because talent is so hard to define. It is. Right? And there's a part of that I wonder where we, we, we need to actually completely disavow ourselves of this idea of talent. Right? I, I think like, that's, like, the perfect place to end the podcast, actually. Yeah. Because we've been here for an hour and five minutes. Oh, my gosh. And it feels like two seconds, honestly. <laughs> but this, th this... It's not about adhering to, like, a structure of what it is. It's the process of learning. And, and or it's or, I'm sorry, it's not even... I don't even want to say it's a process of learning. It's a process of exploring. And if yeah. you have an object in your hand, yeah. you are going to have some form of familiarity with it mm -hmm. that you can manipulate it in a way to... I mean, look, the water bottle that I'm holding can be used as a percussion instrument. That's right. right. If... if, if it could also be used as a weapon. It could. You could throw it at someone in mm -hmm. self-defense. Mm -hmm. Or you could throw it at... No. Please do not throw objects at performers on stage. Oh, my God. Please What stop. is going on? Stop. Everybody stop What is this. going on? Don't but, throw objects at anybody unless they have asked you to. <laughs> and even then, be mindful of faces. Be mindful of faces, you know. And... I'm sorry. I know we're over time, <laughs> but there's always... A, it, it also does kind of... Like, okay, so... It, I, I have a lot of complicated feelings about when people see things in, like, the MoMA. Yeah. Or museum, whatever museums of modern art, and go, oh, my five-year-old can do that. Right. So I actually have a lot of mixed feelings about this because I do think that we devalue the creativity that children have. Right. Okay. I also do recognize that there is a skill set that they may not, like, physically have the coordination to have yet. Right. Right. But so I so I do actually get really I'm I am on the fence about that and I also don't want to discredit the hours that people have put in right. honing their craft and I right. do believe that there is a craft I do believe that there is like you know skill I do believe in in that so it, you know I like I, I feel like I flip flop to both <laughs> ends yeah I can see both right yeah um, but I think that that's exactly where the conversation should be. Right. Is that it's not about I don't know if it's about talent at the end of the mm -hmm. day, but it's about exploration yeah. and whether you are dedicated to the process of exploration. Yes. That process of exploration and expansion that you can find in a jam session. Yes. With your colleagues and friends. Yeah. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> We're just saying that's it. It's <laughs> a perfect place to hit stop. <laughs> Thank you.
thank you, thank you, thank you to Cynthia Wong for being today's guest on Defining Talent, a podcast. And thank you, as always, to everyone who is tuning in to listen to the pod. For more information about Cynthia, as well as previous episodes and guests, you can visit www.definingtalentpod.com. New episodes are released every other Friday, and on Friday, February 23rd, my guest will be the Renaissance man himself, Henry Meza. Henry is currently a graduate student in the MFA in Television, Film, and Theater program at Cal State LA, and although his focus is content creation, I was fortunate enough to have Henry as an actor in the production of Keelian Dew that I directed last school year. He is a delight, and I am so thrilled to have him join us. Again, I'm Laura Dickinson-Turner. This is Defining Talent, a podcast. Thank you so very much for listening. We'll see you next time.